Welcome, it's indisputable, I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you, we have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day, me and me, all right? We do have a fascinating bullpen, somebody who would like to debate about the recent Supreme Court decision to gut affirmative action inside of facilities of higher education throughout America. Top story of the day, Clarence Affirmative Action Thomas benefited from the very program that he decided to gut recently. Yes, United States Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas literally benefited from affirmative action. Let's get into it, I have the background, the details and the insanity. Affirmative action policies at college campuses across the United States were effectively banned after a United States Supreme Court ruling that put an end to years of precedent. The policy which had aimed to help increase minority college admissions was prohibited after SCOTUS was asked to consider whether colleges should no longer be able to use race as a consideration when admitting students. They are standing behind Article 14. Article 14 of the US Constitution provides protection for equality, equal protection clause. Let's dive deep into what has really happened. I'm a college professor. The reason why universities will take race into consideration is the enrichment of the overall experience. Colleges have the ability to place parameters on recruitment and admissions. Many people are under the false impression that affirmative action, which by the way, is not really a policy, it's a set of policies to enhance diversity. But many people are under the impression that affirmative action means that you take a qualified person and you remove them from entry to accept a non-qualified person. That is not how affirmative action or diversity inclusion programs operate in higher education. The way they work is this, very simple. You must meet the requirements to even be considered. You must meet the standards placed by the institution. Once you meet those standards, after that phase has been accomplished, the institution is able to then consider other factors such as leadership capacity, the ability to overcome difficult circumstances, your participation in extracurricular activities, and yes, even race. Not because of skin color alone, but because of the adverse experiences, the skin color, the immutable factor will bring to you. And because of the historical injustices by uh, done by individuals who are less than good faith actors when it comes to accepting students into colleges. But at the height of hypocrisy, Clarence Thomas, US Supreme Court Justice, not only benefited from being an affirmative action student at Yale, Yale Law. He also talked about discrimination, racism inside of the Catholic Church when he wanted to become a priest. And then he moves on to go to Yale Law under their affirmative action clause. Beyond that, he gets appointed 
to the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Education. After that, he becomes chairman of the Equal Opportunity Employment Agency. Let me give you the background. Let's put it up, Representative Richie Torres, a New York Democrat, on June 29th, 2023, he posted, and I quote, imagine dismantling a program that gave you the opportunity to be a student at Yale Law, and then a justice on the US Supreme Court. The mind of Clarence Thomas, the American dream for me, but not for thee, end quote. Let's put up Pastor Bishop Talibert Swan. He said in a post that has been viewed over a million times, he was admitted to Harvard Law School in 1971, right after it adopted a race conscious admissions policy, but chose to go to Yale at the exact moment it created its first explicit affirmative action program with the goal of 10% minority enrollment. Now there are those who will push back and say, well, doc, we have no evidence that Clarence Thomas came under that provision of Yale. We have no evidence that he was there by way of affirmative action. But let me provide the context to the narrative. While Clarence Thomas did not deliver the Supreme Court ruling, he did write a 58 page concurring opinion saying the foundational policies of affirmative action, quote, fly in the face of our colorblind constitution and our nation's equality ideal. In short, they are plainly and boldly unconstitutional. Well, isn't that interesting? Clarence Thomas calling the US Constitution colorblind. Can I say something about that statement? You see, the US Constitution was never written for the people. The US Constitution was never written by the people. The US Constitution was written for rich white males, and it was written by rich white males. Women could not govern, women could not run for office, women did not have equal rights nor equal protection. Black people obviously could not run for office, could not govern, and it did not provide equal protection. You see, the Constitution is actually a flawed document. Most are unwilling to say that out loud. That's the reason we have an amendment process. It is meant to correct the necessity, the necessary corrections that are needed inside of the Constitution. Amendments are fancy words, it simply means a correction. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you the facts, 1991. In 1991, New York Times article about Thomas, Clarence Thomas reported how Yale University officials said Clarence Thomas was admitted to his law school and I quote, under an explicit affirmative action plan with the goal of having blacks and other minority members make up about 10% of the entering class. Professor Abraham S. Goldstein, Dean of the law school from 1970 to 1975 was quoted by the Times as saying, we did adopt an affirmative action program. And it was pretty clearly stated. There's more, a 1994 Yale Alumni Magazine article 
underlines this stating, quote, like most American universities, Yale in the 1960s and 70s embarked on an aggressive policy of affirmative action and admitting and hiring minorities and women. During a 1980 Washington Post interview, Clarence Thomas said, quote, you had to prove yourself every day because the presumption was that you were dumb and didn't deserve to be there or merit. Every time you walked into a law class at Yale, it was like having a monkey jump down on your back from the Gothic arches. The professors and the students resented the very presence, end quote. Clarence Thomas has literally gutted the program that saved him. Now I will say this, it does impact many colleges, but not most. Most colleges have found other ways to instill diversity. It has definitely had an impact on institutions like Harvard and Yale and others where competitive entry is paramount. But even though that's bad, what's coming is worse. This ruling is not the end all. Colleges actually have a way to still work around the ruling. Let me explain. Universities can in fact utilize a person's experience with race, experience with discrimination because of their skin color as a prerequisite or a qualifier considered during the admissions process. So what does that mean? Institutions who want to do it right will have the ability to do it right. Institutions who do not will no longer be mandated to do so. That's how that works. Thomas was made assistant secretary for civil rights in the United States Department of Education in 1981. President Ronald Reagan appointed Thomas as chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission the next year. President George H.W. Bush nominated Thomas to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in 1990. He served in that role for 19 months before filling Marshall's seat on the United States Supreme Court. Cause and effect, look at the lineage here. Clarence Thomas gets accepted into Harvard under a diversity inclusion program. He doesn't go to Harvard, instead he goes to Yale under their aggressive affirmative action program. Without Yale, Clarence Thomas never becomes the civil rights director inside of the US Department of Education. Without that role, he never becomes chairman of the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. Without that role, he never becomes a member of the federal bench through the US Court of Appeals. And that role is what quickly qualified him to become the first black male conservative to sit on that bench. Now, let me say this. There are those who are saying this was a good thing to do. 
I respectfully disagree. Not because the implementation of affirmative action was appropriate, definitely had mishandling in the implementation. White women actually benefited most from affirmative action policies when you actually aggregate the number. This is a bad ruling because of what it does next. It now creates the legal framework to argue that all diversity and inclusion programs, public and private, are no longer legal. That is what this ruling does. Florida, under the leadership of Governor Ron DeSatan, Florida has given you the blueprint of what they want to do. Don't ask yourself anymore, what did they mean by make America great again? You're seeing what they meant right here. We will have more about this during the bullpen. I'm saving some of it for my debate guest. But this is not only a bad ruling for the nation, it's a bad ruling for the generations that will come. I am sick and damn tired of Democrats being so reactionary when they saw the writing on the wall. There are things that can be done and they should be done immediately. Okay, this was a really ironic video. Ricky Smiley, my dear brother, my friend, and a contributor to this show. Ricky Smiley experienced racism, according to him, from an Uber driver. Here's the video. So the Uber driver won't drive me because I'm black. He said, wait a minute, because I'm black? This guy tried this car right here. Just got denied Uber because I'm black. Now, I've got denied a couple times. Now, I'm trying to go home sometimes. Like when I first started, I didn't get my bike. A couple dudes. So why? Why they just like when yeah, he saw me? They pick it up and then they see you. They won't even. He didn't even acknowledge you. You know what I mean? He barely rolled down his window. They be doing that, and that shit is horrible. All right, that Uber driver picked the wrong one or the right one. Ricky Smiley, a dear friend, a significant voice in our culture, a powerful ally for justice. Claims he was discriminated against and I believe him 100%. Ricky doesn't make stuff up. Let's put it up. Uber support says, hi Ricky. We have a zero, zero tolerance policy towards discrimination and this is not okay. We're so sorry this happened. And we're investing, investigating this right away. When Ricky posed the question online of others has similar issues, uh, people say yes. Here's some of the answers. So Don Dion says, and I quote, this happened to me in Orlando. Pulled up on me and the lady I was with, then sped off. Uber, let's racist work for them. Another quote from Kiana McGruder. I sure have had them pull up. And when I went to get in, he locked the door and started driving off. I got a cancel as he was turning the block. Divine Feminine says, yeah, I've had this happen to me plenty of times in Florida. 
but not anywhere else. Von Harris, I have as well. I've had drivers cancel my ride as I was getting ready to get into their car. Keisha Johnson, yes, I have years ago and I reported the driver to Uber. A ride was canceled once I approached the vehicle and opened the door to get in. Classy says, I had the same issue before. Uber blocked me, so I'm with Lyft, no issues. Billy D. Cotner happened to me and my wife in Miami. Uber, it sounds like you may have some explaining to do. I find it hard to believe that all of these individuals are simply making it up. I know good and damn well Ricky Smiley did not, and you know it too. But all of their stories are very similar. No interaction, no debate, no argument, there's no contention. Just the appearance of the individual. And based on that appearance, all of a sudden, the Uber driver leaves or the ride is canceled. Why is this happening, Uber? I would find it hard to believe also that no one has complained to Uber about this being the reality of some of their drivers. Why is this happening so much? Why there's so many complaining, saying the same thing? And many of these individuals, do say that they did in fact alert Uber. I got questions, we will follow this story as it develops. We should have Ricky on this month, and we will bring this up at that time as well. All right, I got an update, let's put it up. Remember, remember the guy who was seen beating, assaulting, a black male, that individual is on the run, but we do have his information. I want to remind you of the video, here it is. Put up the picture full mass. Daniel Thomas Warren is his name. He is accused of beating Daryl Preston in front of Preston's food truck in Portland, Oregon. Here's what I want to do. I want to put up the picture of what this assault did to Mr. Preston, you see that? It is hard to look at, it was harder for Mr. Preston to endure. Police officials say the attack, which occurred on Thursday, June 15th, initially appeared to be a pedestrian struck by a car. That is how brutally beaten Mr. Preston was, he was so mangled and so injured that first responders assumed he had been in a bad car accident as a pedestrian. 
However, police later determined it was a brutal assault. Daryl Preston was allegedly attacked by delivering food, according to the Portland Police Bureau. His family says he was on the phone with his wife during the time of the attack. Portland Fire and Rescue Dispatchers directed officers from the East Precinct to Portland, in Portland to the scene. But by the time officers arrived, both Preston and the alleged assailant had left the area, according to the officials. The individual viciously beat, stomped, and called the black food, food truck driver, food truck owner, racial slurs during the unprovoked attack in front of his business. Laurel's Chicken Shack, according to his attorney. Not only did he have significant injuries, let's put it up again, I wanna explain them to you. You're looking at a man with a swollen and bloodshot eye, busted lips, both of them, and a broken nose. I hit you, N-word, stay on the ground. Attorney Alicia Montgomery quoted the attacker as saying, onlookers captured a bald white male assaulting Mr. Preston on the sidewalk near the business on video. The Portland Police Major Crimes Unit has identified the suspect as Daniel Thomas Warren, 40 years of age. Officials previously announced that they are investigating the case as a biased crime. However, authorities say attempts to locate and apprehend Warren so far have been unsuccessful. Put up his picture again. We have his picture because of a previous previous arrest. He is still on the run as of today's reporting. Keep that picture up. If anybody knows who he is, contact the Portland police. They are not asking anyone to approach him as they do consider him to be dangerous. I want to say this about the lack of vigor I'm seeing from the police department. The lack of vigor, the lack of aggression, is baffling to me. This is a lawless criminal, a lawless criminal walking the streets, beating up random citizens. This person is a menace to society, a threat. Where's the press conference? Where's the attack team? Where's the, we're going to make an example out of crimes like this? Where is that energy? I see it when there's a 17 year old black kid who has done something criminal. But then it just seems to not exist when it's a racially motivated white male doing something massively criminal. We will continue to update the story as it develops. All right, we got more, it's indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back. We have a lot of show left. Let me read some of these amazing comments. So very thankful for your continued support. Savitas Vox, I think that's right. Racism is bad for business. Yeah. Jenna X-Ray Dragon, Doc, you're my hero. Uh, you're mine. All right, I appreciate the sentiment. Scott Smith, YouTube. The Supreme Court will be tackling marriage equality soon. You can bet on it, damn right. You see the plan, you see the dismantling of progress, that's correct. Kay Harper, 
Now we have a name and picture. Let's make sure he gets arrested and prosecuted for this attack. Be on the lookout, everyone. There you go. Everybody should be vigilant. YouTube member, these dystopian dragon. Thank you for that. Make America Great Again was a KKK slogan. Exactly. And Twitch, Conscious Canuck. Justice Thomas just took the wide road of allowing the rich and powerful to have their way at the expense of his humanity. Yep. Miracle, good afternoon, Dr. Rashad. Good afternoon. And I think this is your cervix. Best news show available today, hands down. We appreciate that so much. All right, got something for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish a Karen would. You want to call the police on them for having a barbecue on a Sunday? You're I feel free. Back off! I'm going to tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. She knew three time, two time, three time. She come here. Yeah, what the f you doing, you? Yes. Oh, oh, oh! Take your video, you stupid. You money too? You stupid. For money too, you stupid. The Karenicity in this one runs deep. This man has international Karenicity. He's in an entirely different country. Put up the pictures, full mass. Verbal rampage overseas has gone viral as this particular male Karen continues to be adversarial and obviously aggressive toward the natives. He's in Cambodia, according to the post. And while the situation is somewhat confusing, I don't, I don't know everything that was happening. I do know that his response should have warranted an arrest. But it looks like he goes unscathed. Now, we're not the court of law. We do not control the official government of Cambodia. If I did, I would have made sure your ass was locked up. But we are the court of public opinion. And we provide a valuable public service here, Mel Karen, that allows for an opportunity at reflection and correction. Allow this to be, let's say, an opportunity at an intervention. Things like this are not okay. If you have a disagreement, have a disagreement. If you are aggressive in that disagreement, no issue, sometimes that happens. But once you get to the place of racism and insults and aggressive tactics like that, well, you might end up on indisputable. All right, if anybody knows this individual, make sure you do an intervention with him ASAP, he needs it. Okay, all right, a team attacked 
racially attacked according to the narrative, according to the allegation. You have likely not heard this story. Put up the picture for mass. Moez Irfan, a Lavonia man, is accused of beating up a 13-year-old child and calling him racial slurs at a recreation center earlier this month. Keep that picture up. Not only have you likely not heard of this, but the police department made a move to make sure you did not hear about it. I'm going to get into the details. According to a preliminary investigation, Irfan allegedly physically bumped into a 13 year old child in a stairway. After the bump, he hurled racial slurs at the child and then decided to strike the child on the head multiple times. Officers tried to take Irfan into custody, but he resisted, they said. After the police subdued him, he was taken to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation and was admitted June 16, 2023. He was released from the hospital, arrested and arraigned. Now, the Detroit News is not going to tell you some of the other details that came out immediately afterwards. You see, the police, when they arrived, they did not detain the adult male. They had witnesses that said, this is what happened. He beat a child, they did not detain him. And the fact they did not detain him gave him enough opportunity during the course of the police investigation to run away. He only decided to flee when he realized that eventually he was going to get arrested. But he should have been at least detained upon the officer's arrival, and he was not. There's more, uh, the minor was taken to a hospital to be treated for injuries he sustained in the attack. The team was beaten so bad, he suffered a concussion and memory loss was not able to finish the seventh grade because of the attack. Now, how do we even know about this? Because the police department, they have a Facebook page and a website that will basically post arrest of the week. So anybody gets arrested by the agency, they post you on their online apparatus. Well, this arrest was mysteriously not there. It had absolutely no place on their platform. Put out the picture. You're looking at Miss Delisha Upshaw, a concerned citizen. Recently called out LPD for selectively posting arrest on their social media. According to Miss Upshaw, she routinely sees notices of alleged crimes perpetrated by blacks in the, in the suburban area of Detroit, Detroit City, posted on the department's Facebook. Even some that are nonviolent, according to Metro Times. She submits that the police purposely withheld information about the arrest of a man who beat a 13 year old child at a local recreation center on June 8th. 
She said on Facebook that after LPD was called and the child's mother arrived to the scene, the mom saw the attacker had not been handcuffed or restrained. Upshaw continued to say the attacker Upshaw continued to say the attacker continued to use racial insults, racial insults in front of the police. And only attempted to run after realizing he was about to be arrested. LPD did not include this arrest in their series of who we arrested this week post, she wrote. The police posted his arrest on his Facebook platform on June 26th. Irfan, 29, was charged in the 16th District Court in Livonia with aggravated assault, ethnic intimidation, resisting a police officer, and being a habitual offender. Third offense. A judge set his bond at $50,000 and scheduled his next court appearance, a probable cause conference for Tuesday. If convicted, he faces up to a year in prison for the assault charge, up to two years in prison for ethnic intimidation, and at least two years for resisting a police officer. What about child abuse? It's a 13 year old kid, right? What about the aggravating circumstances around his racism, making it a biased crime or a hate crime? Habitual offender. Obviously applies here based on the record of the individual. But you have to think about the psychology of the officers who responded. According to everyone who's involved, no officer attempted to detain the adult male who has been accused by multiple individuals of abusing a minor. Literally, the minor has marks and visible bruises, injuries. On his body, on his face. They do not detain the adult male. While talking, the officers are hearing the adult male use racial slurs against a child, and they still do not arrest the adult male. And because of their inaction, it almost led to this adult male. Escaping justice because he only started to run once he realized he was going to be arrested. None of this should have happened. Routinely, we have seen innocent black men in particular get handcuffed as soon as the cop arrives. And the officer will say, hey, buddy, I'm doing this for my protection and for yours. You're not under arrest, you're only being detained. Why do cops say that? Because they legally can do that. For their safety, they can. The Supreme Court has upheld that. They can temporarily detain for their safety. So what does that tell you? That tells you that when there's a raging, aggressive, violent male who has attacked a child and used racial slurs and currently using racial slurs, that individual, as long as they're not black, that individual is not a threat to law enforcement, they don't need to detain that person. But if you are a peaceful person of color, if you are a peaceful black male in particular, if the police are coming, you're gonna get those handcuffs. All right, welcome back, we have a lot of show left. 
let me read some of these amazing comments. We got a lot of them kind of pressed for time, can't read all of them. V says, fool, how are you gonna be racist in a whole other country? Exactly, I mean, yeah, that part. YouTube, class action lawsuit against Uber. It seems like it's about to get that way. Jonathan Filichano, Feliciano, I think. I appreciate you joining Indisputable, thank you so much. C. Michael Henson, thank you, C. Michael. Now, I know this male Karen wasn't making fun of the victim's ability to speak English. I could barely understand he is. That's a good one, I agree. Conscious Canuck, so many adult sized juveniles in this world. Yeah, big time. And Green New Deal of Dragon, he's in Cambodia demanding they know English. That's called international charidicity. It doesn't make sense and don't try to make it make sense, okay? Former police chief, former police chief sentenced to eight, count them eight life sentences, why? Well, because he decided to commit arson and a lot of other stuff. Put up the picture of the police chief, David M. Crawford, you won't believe this story. Former police chief out of Maryland will spend the rest of his life in prison after he was found guilty of setting fire to several homes, cars, and cars of people he believed had beef with him, wronged him. So you have to understand the context here. This public servant, this individual who has significant public trust, Went around literally burning up cars, homes of people he did not like. Let me give you the background. Chief Crawford served as a major in the Prince George's County Police Department, chief of the District Heights Police, chief of the Laurel Police Department. This was in Maryland before resigning in 2010. Police discovered it was Chief Crawford with security footage of some of the fires. Investigators noticed that the fires were started by similar methods and by a person wearing the same clothing in each video. Well, that's something. Police searched Crawford's home in January 2021 and discovered a target list of the victims who included government and or law enforcement officials, as well as a relative and two of his former doctors, police said. There was a racial animus behind at least one attack. NPR reports one entry on this target list said, white privilege. Prosecutors said Crawford's wife had been removed from a special advocate program when she disputed the concept of white privilege during training. And in retaliation, Chief Crawford set a car on fire at the program director's home. In 2021, Chief Crawford was arrested for setting fires between 2011 and 2020 in three different counties. The counties 
he set the fires in were Howard County, Frederick County, and Prince George's County. He was convicted of the cases against him in Howard County. That included three house fires and one car fire between March 2017 and September 2018. He was sentenced to eight life terms in prison plus 75 years for fires he set in 2017 and in 2018, put up his picture again. You're looking at the face of a man who likely has gotten away with murder at some point in his history. That's my opinion of him. I don't believe you get to a place of law enforcement where all of a sudden you just start becoming literally a terrorist. I think you, sir, have been a terrorist since you have been a police officer. Let's, let's keep his picture up. Now you have to ask the hard question. How many times has he done this while being police chief? Do you think he's only corrupt in this aspect of his life? Or maybe he was corrupt also as it relates to the job of policing. You see, we will call this individual a psychopath. We will say this person has psychopathic tendencies. I would agree with you. But is it not ironic? That a person who possesses these types or this type of psychology was not only able to be a police officer, but he was able to rise to the highest ranks of the profession. And while at the highest rank, this individual had the ability to control the culture of policing, to cover up crimes done by other cops under him. He was. Their champion, there is absolutely no, there is absolutely no way this happens in any other profession. None. The man was who he is, and the man is who he was. That is my belief. Now, are they going to look at the historical record? Are they going to see if he was corrupt in other areas? Did he lie on police reports? You have to at least assume if a person is willing to commit this level of felony activity, that they're willing to lie on a police report. He sought a position of public trust that would allow him to continue to operate in a way that provided protection rather than accountability. That's what happens when you don't hold people accountable in industries. All right, protests in France, very sad situation, followed by the death of a teen. This teen was shot by the police. Let's put up the pictures full of masks. France has seen a wave of protest since Nahil. Marzouk, 17, was of Algerian and Moroccan descent, was shot and killed by the police last Tuesday. The officer fired his gun during a traffic stop despite no imposing threat at all. Put up a picture of the child. He should be alive, he is not. He worked as a food carrier. The officer 
has only been named as Florian M in French media. No other information has been provided by an official source. The officer who shot the youth has reportedly apologized to the family, has been officially charged with voluntary homicide. An investigation has been launched into the allegation itself. Here's what the mother said. Statement from the mother, identified as Monia M, told France 5 Television earlier this week that she was angry at the accused officer rather than at police in general. He saw a little Arab looking kid and he wanted to take his life, she said. A police officer cannot take his gun and fire at our children. Take our children's lives, end quote. Put up the picture of the officers who have been deployed. An update on the protest, 45,000 officers have been deployed during the unrest. There have been over 1,300 arrests made. Some of the protests have turned violent according to their narrative. Majority are not violent and are being led by the mother. French citizens want to see an end to the deep roots of racism in policing. French police arrested 1,311 people Friday night before the funeral of the team. The UN has stated, this is a moment for the country to address the deep issues of racism and discrimination in law enforcement. Macron has blamed TikTok and Snapchat for having a considerable role in causing violence during protest. He's called for both companies to remove the most sensitive content from their platform, suggesting they should have a spirit of responsibility. You need to tell your damn cops that. There's a discussion to be had about social media and responsibility. Sir, right now, you need to have a conversation. Every single official should have a conversation about police conduct and misconduct. Now, I'm not lecturing because we have problems of our own in America with the police. But it is the same genesis, it comes from the same place. And if you don't put the energy where the energy belongs against individuals who operate in a way that's either hyper aggressive in their racism or implicit in their racism. If you don't address that, we're gonna be here again and again and again. So put the energy where the damn energy belongs. We got more on the other side, it's indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back. We have a lot of show. Let me let me read some of these amazing comments. Uh, Cooking with Miss D says, "All these cops do is commit crimes." What the hell? She also says, 
His friends and family spoke so highly about him. The cops have a lot of hate for people of color in Paris. I feel so sorry for the family. Um, I agree. I agree with everything you just said. On the 505 Wrecking Ball, subscribe with Prime. They've subscribed for 18 months. Thank you so much for that. We appreciate the support, continued support. Thank you. Ghost Dog TV. He has to come back a ninth time if he wants his freedom. All right, hell of an allegation. According to a book, Donald Trump continued to say extremely inappropriate things about his own daughter while being president of the United States. Let's do it this way. Let's put up the book, all right? Let's put it up. According to this book, this is a new book by former Trump official, Miles Taylor. Claims that Trump repeatedly sexualized his own daughter. Excerpt from the book, quote, Aide said he talked about Ivanka Trump's breast, her backside, and what it might be like to have sex with her. Remember Trump's 2003 interview with Howard Stern about Ivanka? Here it is. Although she does have a very nice figure. I've said that if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? <laughs> Stop it. Okay, the other doc, excuse me, that was another show. Another documented statement from Trump about his daughter. Let's put it up, include when Donald Trump was watching his 16 year old daughter Ivanka host the 1997 Miss Teen USA pageant. He turned to the then Miss Universe and asked, quote, don't you think my daughter's hot? She's hot, right? End quote. Mr. Trump has called his eldest daughter voluptuous. He said, it's okay to describe her as, and I quote, a piece of ass, end quote. My daughter Vanka, she's six feet tall. She's got the best body. She made a lot of money as a model, a tremendous amount, end quote. I mean, are Christian evangelicals going to say anything about this? I mean, some of the statements are actually on record already. We didn't need to. Hear it in a book. Are they going to challenge Donald Trump? No. They're going to claim that they just love Jesus and everybody needs to get along. This is insane, right? Imagine if any other president, any other former president would have this kind of stigma connected to them. The Christian right would talk about grooming and everything else. But Donald Trump gets to avoid the narrative that he himself created about himself. He gets to avoid the narrative from them. Why? That is your proof that individuals who support Trump, many of them are in a cult. Cult-like behavior, cult-like mentality means you do not have the ability to self, you do not have the ability to self be self-aware or self-analytical. You cannot judge what you should be able to judge, such as truth. It eludes you. More to come about the book, we shall see exactly what Trump's response is. All right, a man convicted, let's put him up full mass. A man convicted because he decided to shoot at the home of an LGBTQ woman. 46 year old John Russell Howard of Basin, Montana, Basin, Montana, was sentenced on Wednesday to 18 years in prison 
for deciding to fire an AK style weapon into the home of a woman who's a member of the LGBTQI community. And then threatening the town's queer residents in March of 2020. Clearly, clearly a constitutional violation, a hate crime, etc. Court records state that on March 22nd, 2020, Howard sought to rid his community of its gay and lesbian members. He was armed with three rifles and two pistols. When he approached on foot the home of a woman who identified as a lesbian. He fired an AK style rifle at a property with several rounds striking the outside and one round penetrating inside the wall of the home. The woman was home, but thankfully not struck. Howard then reportedly proceeded down the street toward the homes of other LGBTQ members of the community and was intercepted by people leaving a church service who attempted to talk him down. Howard continued to fire off rounds and make statements about harming members of the community of the LGBTQ community. A Jefferson County Sheriff's deputy arrived in response to a 911 call, ordered Howard to put down his weapons. Howard refused to put down his weapons and pointed his rifle at the deputy before fleeing on foot, firing at least one round as he ran. He was arrested the next day. They didn't kill him. They didn't shoot him dead. They arrested him tomorrow. Marinate on that. All right, bullpen is next, stick and stay. All right, welcome back. We have a lot of show left. Let me read a couple of these comments. Natural Born Keeler, member for 11 months, thank you for that. Says, thank you for your continued work on the streets, doc. You're an inspiration. Uh, thank you so much, Iron Sharpens Iron. You are an inspiration to me. I'm happy to be an inspiration to you. All right, and Kenlock K Town, welcome to Indisputable. Thank you so much for joining our YouTube community. We appreciate you in advance. All right, let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. In the bullpen today, we have Mr. Zachary Yost, who is a Pittsburgh writer, base writer, and freelance researcher. His work has been published in various outlets, including the American Conservative, Washington Examiner, and the National Interest. Mr. Yost, good day, welcome to Indisputable. Hello, Dr. Ritchie, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being here. We are going to chop it up about the latest Supreme Court ruling as it relates to affirmative action inside of colleges throughout the country. I don't want to presume what you know or believe about this ruling. So if you would give us your sentiment and I would then opine. Sure thing, so I will say I was very pleased with this ruling. I did think it was the right decision. Um, that's not to say that I don't think there aren't a lot of issues in higher education that I think that affirmative action was trying to solve. Uh, but I think it was sort of way too blunt of an instrument. Um, and especially, I don't really think it was fair to Asian students. I mean, uh, there's sort of lots of uh, stats that were brought up in the 
court case about what seems to be discrimination against them. Um, and I would say that, as you pointed out last week in your commentary, I believe a lot of colleges don't have competitive admission. So it's not an issue for those schools. There are colleges that do, and a big factor in that is legacy admissions. And as I believe your guest last week said, you know, those are a huge issue. And I agree that that is sort of a next step that I think people could come together on to try and make access to these elite institutions, which I'm very critical of. <laughs> we could <laughs> complain about them further later on if you'd like. But yeah. I think the, the, the decisions come down. So now the question is, what can we do about it? And I think legacy admissions, if you receive federal funding, can't have legacy admissions. I think that's more than fair and just and would be very helpful. Let's talk about the reason you may like the ruling. Um, I'm a college professor. I've been a college professor since 2016. We were bracing for this ruling, knowing that it could have went one way or the other. There, there was all also a sentiment, it may be a split ruling, given a state and private institution dynamic, but it was not. Why do you believe that getting rid of affirmative action, which by the way, is not really a policy. Affirmative action is a set of diversity inclusion policies. They called it affirmative action. Um, as a catch-all phrase, why do you think it was right for the Supreme Court to take away a tool that institutions are able to use in order to diversify and provide opportunity for individuals who have been historically discriminated against, even though they qualified? And I submit that question in this context. Affirmative action does not take a non-qualified person and make them qualified. It takes a qualified person and provides an opportunity for them to also illuminate their experiences based on a racial context in the decision making process or the recruitment of the individual. That's what it does. But if you don't meet the bare standard, the minimum standard, you don't get that opportunity anyway. So I submit the question to you in that context. Sure, and um, as I believe I think uh, the Roberts opinion said, it's not like someone's race is not relevant to their life experience and all that, and you say it's a tool. I don't think it's a very good tool. Um, one, uh, well, I think it's far too blunt. And uh, David Bernstein, who's a law professor at GMU, his work was actually cited in Gorsuch's, uh, Gorsuch's uh, mm -hmm. concurring opinion. In his book on racial categorization, according to the government, he points out that at Harvard, uh, something like two thirds of black students are either immigrants, the children of immigrants are biracial. And if the idea is that affirmative action is supposed to be a tool that will help uh, people who are underprivileged, who have faced discrimination and whatnot. Uh, if we just say, well, this person is of African American descent, or I mean, is just from Africa. I mean, if a wealthy, the son of some wealthy Nigerians is not going to have the same experience as the sun, uh, as you know, as that's a, really interesting. So, Mr. Yost, you are arguing that because of perhaps a misapplication of the implementation of the program, it should then be deemed unconstitutional. That doesn't make sense to me. We typically judge the constitutionality of a thing based on the context of statute, constitution, and current or current era. And in current era, 
for four decades, the Supreme Court has upheld that institutions of higher learning are benefited by diversity on campus. So because of that great benefit, they are allowed to make these particular, let's just say, standards or designs in their programming. But I will submit this to you. Do you not see this as a prerequisite to get rid of all diversity inclusion programs in the United States of America? Because the legal framework utilized in order to basically protect this particular ruling can be used for private businesses all across the nation. Don't you see this for what it is, Mr. Yost? This is your first step at getting rid of all diversity and inclusion programming. Uh, well, I don't think that necessarily be a bad thing as such diversity requirements and whatnot exist. Um, I why is it not? Why, why do you say that that would be a good thing to get rid of diversity inclusion programs? Sure, so I think that the there's sort of too much um, aggregation, basically, when it comes to it's sort of a faux diversity. Um, uh, if <laughs> it, I mean the government racial classifications, which underlie these sort of diversity initiatives and whatnot, don't really make much sense. I mean, there are something like 60% of the world's population is Asian. I mean, but a Sikh in India is not. I mean, and a Polynesian, they're not really comparable. It's sort of just this giant lump of people who are very different. But according to our sort of very weirdly arrived at framework from basically the 60s, they're the same. And so if it, a school could say, oh, we have, you know, 30% of our student body is Asian, but a smaller school with a lower percentage of Asian students could actually be more diverse if they have students who count as Asian who are from places all over Asia, which is a well, huge vast continent. Once again, first of all, I don't, I don't even know how to hell that actual applies to what we're talking about. So let me try oh. to get us back on track here. Um, do you know what percentage is mandated by the government under the old ruling? What percentage of diversity was mandated by the government inside of institutions? I do not know. None. Yeah. None. No, no percentage was mandated, sir. That's the point that I hope you can absorb. While we talk about how these programs were somehow adversarial, well, you're talking about implementation. So let's get better on the implementation. And if there's discrimination because of faulty implementation, well, we have a court of remedy. You can take it to the federal court and argue direct discrimination. Rather than overturning four decades of equity programming that has allowed individuals like Clarence Thomas himself become a Supreme Court justice. Do you not find it the height of hypocrisy that the very individual who is serving on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, is an affirmative action individual? He was able to get into Yale Law School by way of their affirmative action program. Don't you find that quite ironic? Uh in a way, I suppose it could be considered ironic. On the other hand, I know, I believe Clarence Thomas has spoken about how he feels that that has made him seem lesser in some people's eyes. And no, he's lesser because he's a sellout. That's why he's lesser in some people's eyes. He's not lesser because 
he was able to benefit from an institutional policy that said we are going to take into consideration your experience as a black male in America because we know that the experience can be adversarial to fairness. That's not somehow wrong. And sir, I submit this to you as well. Clarence Thomas gets into Yale Law based on affirmative action. He then gets appointed to a director position, civil rights division, civil rights division for the Department of Education. He then becomes the chairman of the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. All of these positions, dear sir, implement, execute, prosecute, and bring up issues of racial inequity. And the very same person who benefited from affirmative action gets to decide that no one else can. You can understand why someone would be upset about that. Uh, sure, I can understand why people are upset about the, the whole entire ruling. And I, I know, I, I believe Justice Thomas said explicitly at one point, I think in the early 80s, that he uh, really benefited from affirmative action. But it seems that he's changed his mind over the years, uh, perhaps from exposure to how these programs, I would posit, are not really uh, carried out in a beneficial way. I think they're mm -hmm. Undermining. They benefited sort of him. Uh, it benefited true. him, right? So when you say it's not carried out in a beneficial way, you got Clarence Thomas, don't you? I'm sure I, you support him. A guy that you support <laughs> is on the Supreme Court by way of a policy you don't support. I, well, I don't know where he would have ended up without affirmative action, but. You think he by, ends up on the Supreme Court without a Yale Law degree? You think he ends up being appointed? as the civil rights director for the Department of Education? You think he ends up becoming chairman of the EEOC without having his Yale law degree, sir? Well, I don't know if he would have not been able to get into Yale. I don't know what his test scores were and whatnot. But That's I'm not, not the issue, the, sir, see, you just made my point. Remember, affirmative action, which by the way is a catch all phrase again, it's a diversity inclusion program. The diversity inclusion program did not lower the standard for Clarence Thomas. He still had to meet the standards. Everybody still has to meet the standards of the institution. The only thing affirmative action or diversity and inclusion programming would do is provide another opportunity to explain who you are and why you are. It's just like schools that will say, we care about your leadership capacity. We care about your extracurricular activities. We care about the fact that you have demonstrated the ability to overcome difficult circumstances. All of these things can be weighed in the decision process after they meet the bare minimum requirement to and even enter into the institution. So it is not a question of if he was qualified, dear sir, he was qualified based on the standards. Uh, well, I would say that this was part of the reason the lawsuit was brought up by sort of Asian students is that it's a zero sum game in these elite institutions with competitive admission. If one student is accepted, another student might not be. And this was a point that was cited in the majority that happens opinions. every day, dear sir, in every competitive school that happens. Um, we have an American system that has routinely discriminated against people of color, women, historically marginalized communities. This was a way to correct the dysfunction. You do agree racism exists, right? Sure, it, okay, I don't okay, think that we'll could agree. be questionable. We'll agree on one thing then, we'll agree racism exists. Do you agree racism exists by way of design? Well, I suppose that 
would be a complicated question. There are certainly policies in place that hurt minorities. I would not. So if it that. exists by way of design or architecture, you cannot deconstruct the construction by happenstance. You can only deconstruct a constructed thing by intentionally deconstructing the constructed thing. You get it? You can't fix this without intention, dear brother. So I I would agree. I think we just have a different idea of what tools are appropriate to do. All that. right. All right. We're out of time. Producer wrapping me up. But Mr. Yeltsin, I'm going to bring you back, okay? We'll have this discussion again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, sir. We appreciate being on the show. All right. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable. An update. Five Mississippi cops are now off the job. We covered this. They basically, according to the allegation, kidnapped two black men, held them hostage, sexually assaulted them, shot one in the face, and more for allegedly dating white women, according to one narrative. Let's do this, put up the picture. Now we say from day one that these cops were dirty who did this to these men. All five officers who were involved have not been officially terminated. After the horror show of kidnapping, violently sexually, sexually assaulting, and physically assaulting two black men, left one of them men shot in the mouth. The announcement comes months, months later from Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey earlier accused of covering up the incident. At a news conference on Tuesday, we learned even though they have been fired, no officers have been charged. Quote, due to recent developments, including findings during our internal investigation, those deputies that were still employed by this department have all been terminated. Bailey said at a news conference, we understand that the alleged actions of these deputies has eroded the public's trust in the department. Rest assured that we will work diligently to restore that trust. The announcement came after the two men, Michael Corey Jenkins, 32, and Eddie Terrell Parker, 35, filed a federal lawsuit against the officers earlier this month. The lawsuit claims that six county deputies forcibly entered Mr. Parker's home in Braxton, Mississippi, and raided the property without a warrant on January 24th. That's when Mr. Jenkins and Mr. Parker said that they were beaten and stunned with tasers, abused with a sex toy, and made to strip naked in an ordeal that lasted nearly two damn hours. Let's put it up. As we've seen time and time again, the torturous incident sparked by an alleged drug bust is not the only heinous crime these officers have committed. Bailey's announcement also follows an Associated Press investigation that found several deputies who were involved with the episode were also linked to at least four other violent encounters with black men since 2019 that left two dead and another with a lasting injury. Deputies who had been accepted to the sheriff's office's special 
response team, special response team were involved in each and every one of those encounters. Malik Shabazz, attorney at law, seen in the video earlier recapping the incident, commented on the announcement. The firing of the Rankin County Mississippi Sheriff's deputies involved in the torture and shooting of Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker is a significant action on the path to justice for one of the worst law enforcement tragedies in recent memory. Sheriff Brian Bailey has finally acted after supporting much of the bloodshed that has occurred under his reign in Rankin County. The next credible and honorable step for Brian Bailey is to resign or be ousted. I concur. Obviously, these officers deserve to be charged. Now, you don't get fired from a Mississippi police department without committing a heinous crime, especially when the victim is a black man. There must be some significant evidence there. Do we know all of the evidence? No, they have not disclosed it to us. They have simply said it was enough for them to be fired. We will bring the bring you the update as it comes. Dear brother, thoughts. An Associated Press investigation that found that several deputies who were involved in this episode were also linked to at least four violent encounters with black men since 2019 that yep. left two dead and another with lasting injuries. I know you said that, but I wanted to reiterate it because that's how we got here. If they were charged then, yep. we wouldn't be here. So the lives and the injuries of these individuals are on the hands of this law enforcement agency in this uh, precinct who could have done something back in the day, but failed to do so. And so that only emboldened these officers, by the way, feeling like they yep. can get away with more stuff. So like you said, there must be some really damning evidence that we don't know about for them to finally fire these individuals. So hopefully there will be some charges. There's a civil liability doctrine called negligent hire. And that's when you literally, literally either A, hire somebody that you know cannot do the job or they would do the job very poorly. Or B, you retain their employment knowing that they have acted in a way that could provide danger to those they serve. 